Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the latest on the battle over policing in the city of Surrey. So Surrey continue with the city's transition to a municipal police force or cancel the whole thing, stick with the RCMP. The latest development here now. Oh, this is fascinating now. A Surrey city councillor, was he in a conflict of interest when he voted to keep the RCMP? Councillor Rob Stutt. His son is a Surrey RCMP officer. His daughter also works for the RCMP. Now the union for the new Surrey police force has filed a conflict of interest complaint against him. Got Darren Shepard standing by from the union. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart. In November, Surrey City Council voted 5-4 to four to keep the RCMP and abandon plans for the new Surrey Police Service. Opposed. Passes. Councillor Rob Stutt, a former Mountie, was among those who voted to keep the RCMP. Now, the Surrey Police Union alleges he was in a conflict of interest. He has two children who currently work at the Surrey RCMP, uh, one as a sworn police officer and one as a civilian secondment from the city of Surrey. Okay, should this uh, city councillor have abstained from that vote? Was he in a conflict of interest here? Let's check in with Sergeant Darren Shepard now from the Surrey Police Union Executive. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Sergeant Shepard, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. Okay, so let's talk about this particular city councillor. And by the way, we reached out to him and I asked him to come on the show today, did not respond to my invitation. So let's, let's talk about your concerns here. What are your concerns? Um, well, our concerns are primarily that uh, um, it would have been preferable to have this conflict declared by Councillor Stutt in advance of the motion to reverse the transition in November. Um, unfortunately, that did not happen. Um, we gathered information uh, post-election in relation to this, and we're in the position now to submit a complaint, um, essentially so that any further actions or votes undertaken by council regarding Surrey's policing future can be conducted with integrity and transparency rather than what has gone on to this point. Yeah, if you, so this is a complaint that the, the union for the new Surrey Municipal Surrey Police Force, of which you're a part, uh, you filed this under the, what, the city's conflict of interest rules, is that right? That's correct. It's under the okay. uh, City of Surrey Council Code uh, conduct bylaws, which state that council members shall rigorously avoid situations which may result in claims of uh, conflict of interest and bias, including that a council member shall not attempt to obtain a benefit from the city for a family member. Obviously, yeah. with uh, Councillor Stutz's um, son and daughter working at the Surrey RCMP, uh, to us that is uh, warrant, warrants an investigation into a conflict of interest. Yeah, okay, so you filed this, this claim. What happens now? What is the process here? Well, the City of Surrey is currently uh, looking for somebody to hire as their uh, ethics commissioner. Um, Mayor Locke has uh, indicated that she wants to get that done in a timely fashion. Uh, so we're asking that um, that be done expeditiously and that the newly appointed uh, ethics commissioner examine this to determine um, the conflict and uh, also look at some of the bigger questions too, such as um, did Mayor Locke know about this conflict of interest uh, prior to that November vote? Um, and if she did not know about it, um, why did Councillor Stutt not disclose this information to her? Mm. 
Speaking to Sergeant Darren Shepard, he's with the union at the new Surrey Police Service, the new municipal police force. So, so are you saying that, okay, let's, let's say if he wasn't a conflict of interest and, you know, it looks on the surface of it like this is a troubling situation for sure. Like, so do you think he should have abstained from voting? Like, to, if you declare a conflict of interest on an issue, you should not vote on it, right? So he should have abstained from voting. Is that, is that what you think? Absolutely, and uh, yeah. should have recused himself from the vote. That right. would have had implications for the vote as well. And then also looking forward, uh, Mayor Locke has appointed Councillor Stutt as the head of her new uh, public safety committee, um, which she has touted as a de facto RCMP police board. Um, so not only did uh, Councillor Stutt vote on the issue of the transition and his vote uh, to reverse it uh, did have a significant impact for the province staff to become involved again. But going forward, um, having such a close relationship with the uh, Surrey RCMP, it's also troubling that he would be uh, the head of a committee that should be essentially what Mayor Locke has touted as an independent oversight of the RCMP. Um, how hmm. can that be an independent oversight when he has uh, um, two of his children working at the Surrey RCMP? Right. Okay, so his son is an RCMP officer, his daughter also working for the Surrey RCMP on a secondment from the city. Do you think that if he had said, okay, if he had disclosed this and said, look, I'm in a conflict, I, I can't vote on this, my kids are working for the RCMP in Surrey, so you know, I've got to abstain here. The vote was very close. It was a five to four vote at city council to keep the RCMP and this councillor voted obviously in favor of the RCMP. If yep. he had if he had abstained and not voted, then it would have been a tie vote, correct? Uh, it actually would have been four three in favor of the transition because the mayor wouldn't have voted at that point. Oh. Uh, the mayor, mayor voted as the tiebreaker, so that was the. Uh, um, so yeah, it did have a very significant effect. Um, again, was Mayor Locke aware of this prior to that vote of this conflict? Uh, if she was not aware. Um, why did Councillor Stutt not disclose it to her? Oh, okay. So, so we, we're asking the commissioner to look into. Yeah. So the mayor only votes to break a tie, right? Correct. So if if this guy had abstained, then the vote would have failed four to three, and so she yeah. wouldn't she would not have voted at all. Yeah. And wow. Uh, what what's what's done is done like that vote is is passed and uh, but what we're looking at is looking forward here what um what would the uh, ethics commissioner say in terms of uh councillor stuck continuing to participate in votes involving the transition uh policing in general and indeed uh being appointed the head of the uh public safety committee um which is as i said uh mayor Locke's de facto uh surrey rcmp police board Again, supposedly an independent uh, civilian oversight uh, or oversight of this. uh, And it's concerning that uh, there's such a, well, to us anyways, an evident conflict, but uh, to be determined by the Commissioner of Ethics when that uh, person is named. What what do you think about the current, this last question for you, Darren, like what do you think about the current debate over this in the city of Surrey, especially when you've got the mayor and her her councillors saying, look, this is going to cost a fortune here if we keep going down the road of this transition and continue with with your Surrey Police Service. We've got to go back to the RCMP or it's going to burn taxpayers in Surrey to a crisp. It's going to be so expensive. She's just announced a a huge tax, uh, property tax hike in the city, blaming largely the transition of the police force. 
a new police force, and she said, if you keep going down this road, it's going to get even worse. People are just going to get hammered with huge tax hikes. Are you are you buying that? Are you you think that's not true? No, I, I disagree with that. Um, I mean, initially, uh, Mayor Locke's uh, numbers came out that it was going to be a half a billion dollars, then it was going to be two hundred and thirty million dollars, then it was going to be you know hundreds of millions of dollars. And what we've indicated all, all along is that. Um, while there may be some cost increases, there's also service delivery models that would work more appropriately for the city of Surrey and its citizens. And we've asked, or pardon me, the chief has asked for an independent audit of the numbers. Um, there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there, um, a lot of scare tactics, I would say, in terms of um, uh, some of the numbers being touted. And her tax increases are basically... Uh, for her to reverse the transition at this point. So for her to um, have to look at the sunk costs and increase taxes, and even those numbers we don't necessarily agree with, but it's important, right. and I think that it's been uh, touted all along that somebody independent needs to uh, to come up with uh, an audit and, and give, the, give the citizens of Surrey and the taxpayers of Surrey the real numbers so that these uh, grossly inflated numbers can be put to rest. Okay, thank you very much for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. All right, here we go now with your Metro Vancouver road conditions. Just taking a look at Drive BC. Yeah, it is a mess out there and a lot of commuter routes. We've got a lot of spun out vehicles. If you're behind the wheel of your vehicle right now, just slow down, take it easy. If you've got a flight out of YVR, just taking a look at the YVR departure list right now, lots of flights delayed and cancelled. We've got uh, Daniel Fontaine standing by to discuss first. Have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Grace Key. Municipalities are gearing up once again for another round of snow. In Surrey, more than 50 pieces of equipment are still running 24 hours a day and pre-salting roads where possible. We'll have staff on, like I said, 24 hours a day. So even if it comes closer to the commute, we'll have staff responding and hopefully clearing the roads as, as quickly as we can. Vancouver also has staff out around the clock preparing for the changing conditions as they salt and treat all major routes ahead of the morning commute. Okay, does Metro Vancouver have an adequate snow response system in place here? Do we need better coordination, more snow plows, better communication? Let's check in now with Daniel Fontaine, City Councillor, New Westminster. Very pleased to welcome him back. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, what's it like out where you are? Well, it is definitely snowing in New Westminster. Um, it has been snowing for qu- quite a while, and it looks like it's uh, going to be continuing through till the afternoon. Uh, the road conditions uh, are, are uh, you know, depending on where you're at. New West is a fairly hilly uh, community, so the hills are obviously uh, uh, a little bit worse than the, the, the flat areas. But overall, I think the city crews are out there doing as best they can to um, continue to apply um, the, the salt and make sure that people can get to and from where they need to go as quickly as possible. It seems like we've got kind of a, a patchwork response around the region. Like some of these major commuter highways and bridges are provincial responsibility as I, mm-hmm. as I understand it. So there, there may be a coordinated response there. But when it comes to other sort of uh, routes in the city, those are all largely municipal responsibility to maintain those roads, correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. We do very much have a patchwork. We obviously have a, a number of cities in the in the metro area, so they each have to maintain their own uh, roads. And then we have the province, the Ministry of Transportation, which uh, is responsible for the major highways and on-ramps and off-ramps. And if you recall, back in the initial storm that hit us on November 29th, those were the choke points. Those were where the uh, the, the system effectively uh, collapsed and, and the roads were basically plugged up on the major highways and then that backed up onto the kind of side roads and then we saw you know people taking 12 hours to get home and it normally takes an hour so that was definitely um, uh, one of the main uh, big problems that night. Yeah that November storm I think was a bit of a wake-up call for some people because I noted yesterday that both the cities of Surrey and, and the city of Vancouver their officials both front and center saying like you know advising commuters be aware slow down uh, roads mm-hmm. could be roads could be problematic, and we're and we got all hands on deck. Like this is a full court mm-hmm. press, all our people working flat out to salt, brine, remove snow and ice. So, do you think that do you, do you think that event in November maybe was triggered some better responses this time around? Oh, absolutely. I think that that event in November and the subsequent media coverage and and uh, you know the the calls for things like a snow summit and others. I think it it put people on notice that uh, the, you know the public were severely impacted that night, um, and also our first responders, ambulance, fire, police, etc. We we were so in such a gridlock in Metro Vancouver that I know that um, officials did not want to have that repeated again uh, throughout this winter. And and one of the key areas was the lack of communication on that initial snowstorm around, you know, advising people to stay off the roads, to be prepared. Um, there was really, I think, a lack of communication. And there seems to be a little bit better of a response in terms of providing with um, a bit more advanced notice and letting people know where um, some of the, the potential uh, uh, hotspots might be in terms of uh, wanting to avoid uh, in, in the snow. Do you think it's a question of better communication is required, or do we need more infrastructure? Like, do we need more snow plows? Do we need more fit people that can go out and brine and salt roads when this stuff hits? Because a lot of it is, you know, we, people always say, well, we need better communication. Well, a lot of it is just common sense. You look out your window, it's a mess out there. <laughs> just stay home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, two things. First of all, on the communication side, what I heard from a lot of people is the night that that storm happened, they were trying to get communication around whether or not the ministry or uh, various cities uh, were, were telling people to stay off the roads and to, to kind of avoid them and not begin any kind of commute trying to get, you know, from point A to point B. I heard a lot of people indicate that they tried to get information and tried to get um, communication from the various officials and they didn't get it and they did venture out and then they were stuck. So so there there is an issue there. But it, it speaks to the bigger issue, Mike, around what happened on November 29th and what happened that night that you know, a few inches of snow effectively shut down our entire economy and the entire region for um, a period of almost, you know, 24 hours. And I don't have the answers to that. And that's why both Surrey Councilor Linda Annis and I have been calling for now uh, several months for us to actually bring the right officials into the room and find out what happened and hear from the subject matter experts whether we have enough plows or whether we've actually got a proper coordinated strategy or whether we are communicating well enough I simply don't know. I, I could guess. I could, um, you know, uh, kind of be armchair quarterback. But I'd rather have the experts in the room answering, you know, some tough questions from from officials as to what happened. And, and to me, most importantly, is 
how can we prevent it from happening again? That's really what the point of that exercise would be. I, I saw there's a, a, a satirical website called the Beaverton you may be familiar with. It's mm-hmm. quite, it's quite funny. And I saw their, their headline was Van, Vancouver considers buying a second snowplow, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of funny. Like the rest of the country kind of, I think, to an extent rolls their eyes and laughs at Vancouver. They get a few inches of snow and everybody freaks out. But would mm-hmm. you say though, given what we went through in November, like, is the city poor, is the region poorly prepared for these events? Mm-hmm. Because they seem to be happening more often. Yeah, and they, they are going to happen more often. I mean, the climate scientists are, have been telling us for well over a decade now that we are going to be getting uh, more of these climactic events and, and, and things like snowstorms, ice storms. We, we know this is coming. And we also know in Metro Vancouver that for better or worse, we've designed all these new bridges, including the Petula Bridge, which is coming in, uh, being under construction here in New Westminster. These bridges are designed in a way, for, I'm not an engineer, but they seem to collect a lot of ice and snow and create things like snow bombs and, and stuff. So we, we, we are um, definitely not equipped, I would say, in terms of having anything like what, say, a city like Montreal and Toronto would have in terms of being able to get rid of the snow. I think Victoria, where you're at, I think they, they do have one plow that does work, you know, occasionally if I'm, you know, a couple days a week <laughs> if needed. So we, we definitely don't have the equipment, but Perhaps these are the questions we should be asking ourselves is if we're in the midst of climate change and we're going to have to adapt, um, how are we going to adapt in terms of our response to snowstorms and how are we going to adapt in terms of our budgets for snow clearing and making sure that um, our roads are accessible? And okay. I think it's a valid question. Yeah. Let's talk about the latest now on the Chinese state interference in Canadian elections. The bombshell reporting here by Global News this week that a a Liberal MP, Han Dong in Ontario, was on the radar of CSIS for alleged involvement in Chinese state interference campaigns in Canada. He has denied this. He said it's not true. Uh, sources telling Global News, CSIS, though, considered him a security risk. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau asked about this yesterday. I'm going to play some clips of the Prime Minister for you. I've got Phil Gursky standing by. He's a, a former analyst at CSIS, and I'm looking forward to his analysis here. First, let's have a listen to, to Trudeau here. Now, he's asked about this particular MP. This MP is still in, in the Liberal caucus in Ottawa, Han Dong, and he defends the MP. He's asked about these reports. Was the Prime Minister's office urged to rescind his nomination papers? Here's what Trudeau had to say. Have a listen. It is not up to unelected security officials to dictate to political parties who can or cannot run. The suggestions we've seen in the media that CSIS would somehow say, no, this person can't run or that person can't run, is not just false, it's actually damaging to people's uh, confidence in our democratic and political institutions. Okay, so he says it's false there, but, you know, I'm, I'm, still not, I'm still not really satisfied with the answer because some of the language there, in my opinion, is a bit imprecise. But let's check in with Phil Gursky now. Phil is a former analyst at CSIS. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Phil, thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. How are you today? 
I'm doing great. And Phil, you followed these issues for a long time. And man, oh man, this one really seems to have hit a peak here um, with a, a lot of uh, rising calls now for a public inquiry into the whole thing. What do you make of the revelations we've seen here in the last few days? Well, just for clarification, Mike, yeah, I was with CSIS, but I was a, a, a terrorism analyst, not a China analyst. But I had lots of colleagues who were working that. So, you know, you, by osmosis, you pick up things here and there. And I, what... I just don't get what the prime minister is saying. Am I got nowhere to laugh or cry? CSIS isn't telling anyone they can or cannot run for office. What yeah. CSIS is doing is what its mandate tells it to do. You investigate threats to national security as defined under Section 2, uh, 2 of the CSIS Act. 2B covers foreign interference. CSIS is saying, here's what we know about X, Y, or Z. And in this case, about a particular MP. We've done our investigations. We've corroborated the intelligence. This is the best job we can do, and here's what we're telling you. You can ignore it, think it's false, think it's inaccurate, whatever, but how is the prime minister at all suggesting CSIS is telling Canadians who to vote for? It's it's completely ludicrous. This is the thing that I have found really frustrating and is, you know, often with the prime minister, his answers are ambiguous. They're not precise like he talks in this kind of political doublespeak sometimes, so it sounds like he's making a very firm, definitive denial there. But if you listen carefully to his precise words, like he was saying there that CSIS did not, can't tell us who can run and tell us who can't run, that is not the allegation. Like if we go back yeah. to the original reporting here by Global Sam Cooper, sources telling him that CSIS urged Trudeau's team to rescind the nomination papers, the candidacy of this MP. They urged him to rescind. They didn't tell him he can't run. So, you know, this is where I I, I find it frustrating. Like, Trudeau gives this answer, and it's not a clear answer. Your thoughts? Well, look, CSIS is is an intelligence service. Um, It advises. Right in the CSIS Act, Mike, it says we collect, we analyze, and we advise so if CSIS went to the point where it advised, as you say, to rescind the nomination papers, I find that striking because I don't recall that ever happening before. It may have before my time, but I wasn't there. But what it goes to show for me is that CSIS was quite convinced that the intelligence that it had on this particular individual was very damaging, that he um, had been coerced or co-opted, rather, by a foreign power that is not an, an ally of Canada, and that it is in the national and public interest that uh, action be taken. That's what advisors do, Mike. And, you know, if yeah. you want to shoot the messenger, go ahead and shoot the messenger. But don't tell the messenger that he or she doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah, let's listen to another clip of the prime minister here, because one of the things that seems clear is that it seems that his staff did receive some kind of briefing from CSIS about this MP, because I have not heard a, an absolute clear and firm denial that CSIS had not come to him concerned about this MP. So let's listen to him Listen to him again here talking about CSIS. So this is Justin Trudeau speaking yesterday. CSIS is active in fighting against foreign interference, and part of its tools for doing that is making sure that political parties and individual politicians are alert to uh, the potential influences they may be faced with. That is something we will continue to work closely with CSIS on uh, as we move forward. That to me sounds like kind of an admission, in a, and again, in a roundabout way, that maybe that he is that they did receive some sort of a briefing or warning about the, about this MP from CSIS. Is that the way you analyze what you just heard there? 
Well, I'd be very surprised uh, mm-hmm. if he wasn't aware of it. But look, you know, the way this works, Mike, is that, you know, CSIS has this, what we call our customers or our clients. We would advise them on the intelligence we have. We would brief them. I don't know that CSIS actually has the ear of the prime minister directly. He has a national security advisor. There are other levels within parliament and in the party that do this. If, in fact, he wasn't briefed, then there's some, something is wrong. Something is missing. Someone blocked the message, didn't pass on, whatever kind of thing. But, yeah, it seems to be that he's saying CSIS is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. But in this case, I'm, I'm going to ignore it. I'm not going to believe them what they're telling. And he said that a few days ago there were inaccuracies in the report, to which I said, well, point them out, sir. What inaccuracies are you talking about? So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of it's, it's puzzling to see his response. It's kind of this and kind of that. And, well, some would argue, Mike, that's what politicians are good at, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, politicians are will often talk in these sort of deliberately ambiguous terms. You know, they don't want to get pinned down. And, and yeah. this is why there are continuing calls here now for some sort of testimony under oath, like some sort of public inquiry. So let me get your thoughts on that. Let's play a clip here of Richard Fadden. So this is the former director of CSIS talking about a potential public inquiry into Chinese state interference in Canada. Here's what he had to say. I'll get your thoughts. Richard Fadden. The allegations are so serious, they need to be looked into. So the question is, if you don't do a public inquiry, who does it? I think the logical place would be Parliament, but it has become so partisan that I think that this particular kind of topic would be almost impossible for them to look at objectively. So I think a public inquiry is really the route to go. I mean, there is a committee system in place on Parliament Hill where committees can call in witnesses and hear oath, but he's saying that this thing has become so politically partisan, take it out of the hands of the politicians and do an independent public inquiry. I'm not a huge fan of these public inquiries at times because I think they cost a ton of money and sometimes they never get to the bottom of what they're trying to investigate. But what do you think of the idea? Well, in principle, I like it, although Ward Elcock, another CSIS director under whom I worked, has come out against the idea because of the nature of the information will be too sensitive to disclose publicly. So you're going to run up against this, well, we can't disclose the intelligence, and then how far do you go down the road? But uh, Mr. Fadden, under whom also I worked, uh, is absolutely right. We're, we're, we're beset by partisanism, partisanship, I guess, in Parliament. It's not quite clear if, if it can be looked at at that level. So it's, bottom line is, Mike, that something has to be done. Someone has to take this thing seriously. Are they going to bury it? Hope a commission comes out with the answer they'd like, like the Rural Commission, for example, or are we going to get real answers to real questions? And I'm an optimist, Mike, but I'm also not that optimistic. Well, I think you raise a really good point, because how can you have a public inquiry about classified information that's basically top secret? Like a lot of these news reports that have come out from Global, the Globe and Mail, they're referencing like secret intelligence documents. So how can you have an inquiry in public that will start talking about top secret intelligence? Is that even possible? Well, it's highly um, dangerous because the one thing that you, you, you're drummed, it's tattooed in your forehead on the first day of the job, Mike, is you protect sources and methods. And if you disclose something publicly that makes it quite clear what the source is or what the method is, those sources and methods dry up and you can't collect anymore. So those of us who worked in intelligence are very careful about what we said and how we said it. And you're right. If this is a public inquiry, there'll be demands that a lot of the stuff is put on the table. And then, you know, like you go to, to um, court cases where CSIS intelligence is sometimes, you know, dangled in front of the defense. Often the, the Crown will drop the case because CSIS says, no, you can't go down that road. We can't compromise our sources. So it'd be highly problematic at best. But as I said earlier, uh, this this dithering and this obfuscation on the part of the, the, the prime minister simply has to stop. 
Okay, we continue talking about Chinese state interference in Canadian elections. My guest is Phil Gursky, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil is a former analyst at CSIS. And we talked before the break about the calls by Richard Fadden, former CSIS director, Phil, for a public inquiry into this. We don't, not Canadians not getting the answers I think they deserve on this story. Let's listen again here to more from Richard Fadden, the former director at CSIS, and I'll get your thoughts. It should be given a limited mandate so that they report, you know, before, well before the next election. They should be in an inquiry under the Inquiries Act so that they can call, subpoena people and documents if need be. Uh, and I can't see any compelling reason not to do it in the public interest except some partisan considerations. I think the last thing that Justin Trudeau would want is a, an inquiry of the of the type that this former CSIS director just described there, Phil. But he says there's no good reason that it should not happen other than other than partisan resistance to it. But I don't know. We talked a little bit about some of the intricacies of this. I think I think it would be a, a public inquiry would be difficult, would it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it would, uh, Mike, for the reasons we already talked about about yeah. the nature of the intelligence. You know, it's been leaked to. Uh, Fife and Chase of the Globe and Mail, and they won't, of course, disclose their sources, but uh, you can't keep doing this. Uh, you, you know, put it this way, Mike, if this intelligence had been acted upon like it should have by the government, it wouldn't have taken uh, Fife and, and Chase to leak it to inform Canadians, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to some phone calls. Bill in Richmond. Hi, Bill. Go ahead. Uh, hi, Mike. Yeah. Uh, Trudeau almost sounds like a double agent every time he speaks off the cuff. You know, uh, CSIS is here to protect Canada. And, yeah, they should uh, determine, you know, who is safe and who has ulterior motives, you know, right. to hurt Canada. There's a, there's a reason why Trudeau, uh, why we can't afford homes in Canada, why he wants to take away firearms in Canada. You know, he's opening the door to overseas influence. And I think he's a double agent. Okay, well, we're going down a few rabbit holes there. But I, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, the bottom line is, you know, he keeps saying that, he keeps sort of semi sort of admitting that the, he, they had received briefings from CSIS. I mean, he sort of acknowledges that that is sort of standard operating procedure, I guess. So he's not denying that he's been briefed from CSIS about threats from China. And he, and he said, like, I've been saying this for years. Like, we know about these threats from China. But the other thing he keeps saying, Phil, is it didn't work. Like, he said Canadians can have confidence that the outcomes of these last two elections were were fair and and any Chinese kind of interference didn't work and didn't affect the outcome. How do we how do we know that? What's the evidence of that that it didn't work? Well, we don't. Is, I mean, yeah. uh, unless they're measuring every person's vote and the, and the motivation behind their vote, Mike, which would be extreme government interference in our in our freedom and democracy in this country, we don't. But you know, the bottom line is it doesn't really matter if it affected election or not. It was done. It was done, and it was allowed to be done because the intelligence was ignored. Steps were not taken to identify people, either through a foreign agent registry or through the expulsion of Chinese diplomats that work for intelligence services. A lot could have been done to make this a much lesser problem, irrespective of whether it actually affected the way Canadians vote or not. The fact that it was done is the problem here. Yeah, I mean, you can't look inside someone's mind or heart and decide how they, why they voted the way they did in a in a no. private voting booth. No. So you, how can you tell it? How can you say that it didn't work? You don't, we don't know that it didn't work. Maybe it did work. Well, exactly. But again, yeah. to me, the, the bigger issue is that it, they knew it was happening, and then they've t- taken very few steps if any to actually address it. And yeah. I think that's what Can- that's what Canadians demand, Mike. You know, the yeah. prime minister to have our interests in heart and, and and keep us safe from foreign interference. Take another call. Peter in Burnaby. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I do think uh, public inquiry is critical. I also think that there is a, a, a lack of confidence that is growing in our political system, especially when news reports like this come out. And I know that it's an often gone to place that says, well, you know, we don't want to segregate a population or show that a certain group is being discriminated against. Yeah. I think we're, we're bigger than that. We're better than that. This isn't about someone who is of Chinese origin. This is about uh, a government in a country that has proven and shown uh, an unworthiness of trust and the way that they conduct themselves. Hey, Peter, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze in one more here in the minute we have left. Jim in Surrey. Jim, you got 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Good morning, Mike. You know, CSIS is our highest office that we have in this country to fight terrorism. Our most trusted terrorism office. If they're saying these things, there's something very, very seriously wrong in this country. Right now, I think we have an illegitimate government at this point. We need a public inquiry. No BS. Cut that out. We need a public inquiry. We need to summon and we need to put people under oath to okay. testify. I this don't think I don't think on. it's going. Uh, thank you for the call. I, th- I think the Trudeau administration will, will resist it. 30 seconds left, Phil. Where do, where do you think it goes from here? There is a committee on Parliament Hill of MPs that would like to summon some people to testify. I'm not sure that's going to be successful either. Do you get 10 seconds here? Mike, as long as something's done, let's do it. Let's just obfuscate yeah. this matter. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, take care, Mike. All right, here we go now with the campaign for a four-day work week in British Columbia. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Get a long weekend every weekend. Now, this is an idea that's been proposed by the B.C. Green Party. I spoke to B.C. Green Party leader Sonia Firstenau about it on the show last week. Now, here's the way this would work. She says what they should do is offer a tax incentive, so a tax break, to any company that does this. It brings in a four-day work week for their employees. That way you're not forcing it. You're sort of incentivizing companies to do it. I don't know. Should we do this in BC? Give it a whirl? Here's what she had to say to me about it. Have a listen. Workers are healthier, happier. They're more satisfied. But the employers and the businesses also benefit. They see better productivity. They see their costs go down. They often see their revenues go up. So it really is a win-win. Okay, now some companies are already trying this, including a Vancouver gaming company called Blackbird Interactive. Have a listen to Trey Smith here from this gaming company. It's really been win-win for everybody. You know, productivity is maintained the same. The quality is as good as it's ever been, but most importantly, just people are happier and people are healthier. Okay, well, let's discuss this now with my guest, Joe O'Connor. Joe is with the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Great to join you again. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you again. So, you know, this has got to be encouraging for you to see uh, at least an opposition party here in British Columbia making the call to try this. She described it as an incentive program, so you'd incentivize this for companies to do it voluntarily by offering them a tax break if they give it a try. What do you think of that idea? I think it's a good idea. It mirrors a scheme that's been proposed in Maryland that I spoke in favor of and by the Maryland legislature a couple of weeks ago, whereby effectively this is something that, you know, as with any new innovation in business, it carries with it a degree of risk for those early adapters. So what this tax incentive proposal could do 
would be to, to give those businesses who are considering this, who have looked at the studies internationally, as well as here in Canada, that have showed very positive benefits for businesses. And this could be the added nudge and incentive that encourages them to show leadership um, and to test this out, which obviously from a public policy perspective would, would certainly um, help to build a research base in, in British Columbia for you know, how this could work across different industries. I think also from a competitiveness standpoint, it offers businesses in BC the opportunity um, to really be at the forefront of, of what is now a, a huge global movement and to give themselves a competitive edge and differentiate themselves in, in a really, really um, tight, hot labor market. Okay, when we talk about a four-day work week, let's, let's define our terms here about what we're talking about because we're not talking about a compressed work week, right? Like I know that some, some workplaces have gone to, let's say, a four-day work week, but you, you work longer hours on those four days. So you basically, you basically squeeze five days of work into four. So maybe people are working like a 10-hour day for four days and then you get an, a day off. That's not what we're talking about here, right? No. So if you look at the global trials that have been taking place, um, including the one in the United Kingdom, which uh, the results were released from last week and which got quite a bit of publicity and attention, what we're talking about is reduced work time in exchange for the same pay for employees, but critically in exchange for a commitment to delivering the same level of productivity. My organization, the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence, we work with businesses to help them to work smarter in order to be able to produce the same and in many cases even better output in less time. And this is done through a combination of work reorganization, streamlining processes, finding efficiencies, but also the very powerful incentive that the offer of a shorter work week brings. You know, employees are very motivated and focused to hit company level performance targets and objectives in exchange for maintaining this very attractive policy. Okay, you mentioned this uh, result of this experiment in the United Kingdom. Can can you explain to the listeners what happened there? That this, you're right. This got a lot of attention here in the past week. What what did they do in the UK? So in the United Kingdom, it was the largest trial of its kind anywhere in the world to date. It involves 61 companies from a very diverse range of different industries, about 3,000 employees. And what the results from this found, it was studied by researchers at Boston College and also at Cambridge University, was very much in line with previous trials and research that we've seen in this space. The employees that worked the shorter work week were happier and healthier, and the companies that they worked for were more productive, they were more efficient, and they were also much more attractive when it comes to recruitment and retention. So we saw among these companies a year-on-year average revenue increase of 35%. So those companies that that moved to a four-day week that were successful and they were growing. And they also saw dramatic declines in terms of employee turnover, so that the companies involved were losing less people, and also a big fall-off in sick leave, which suggested that the the, the employees participating were better refreshed and and they were were, were better able to perform um, on the four days that they were at work. Okay, for a lot of people, this almost sounds too good to be true. Like, people hear this and they say, wait a sec, I can just work four days a week, so work less and still get paid the same amount? Really? And and I know employers, I've heard from some employers saying, like, come on, this is, this is not on. How how is this even possible? So let me, let me play a, let me play a a sample here. 
of, of some of the reaction we get on this idea, Joe. So this is on the open line on our show last week. This is Ryan in Vancouver making a point about a four-day work week. Then I'll get your thoughts. Have a listen. If you go down to a four-day work week, you actually put higher stress on your people because you need to get five days worth of work done in four days. And if it's not a longer day, you're stressing them out and they have no time for any sort of family or anything to get anything done. Okay, what do you say to that argument that actually is going to be stressful for people to say, okay, you've got to get five days worth of work done in four days now? So I've been hearing that argument since I started, you know, in research advocacy and coaching in this space in about 2018. And it just isn't borne out by the research or by the experiences of companies that have done this, certainly for the most part and certainly for the vast vast majority of people. And the reason behind that is the four-day week is as much about changing the way you work as it is about changing the number of hours you work for. So in other words, this isn't about compressing the same volume of work into four days, but it's actually about looking at how can we produce the same output or as we've seen for a lot of these companies, in many cases, better output with less input. So it is about work reorganization, changing work practices, finding leaner systems. You know, a lot of companies that have done this, they streamline meetings, they make better use of technology, they automate certain tasks, they eliminate distractions. So that's the reason why, for the most part, people's experience isn't that this requires a huge speed up of work. It isn't that it requires them to work much more intensively but actually they're able to get more done in less time without increasing stress. Okay, so another argument I've heard, and I'm sure you have too, that maybe this could work in an office that's dealing with data or, you know, we heard we heard from the guy who runs a gaming company in Vancouver. Okay, maybe it could work well in, in a gaming environment, but if you actually have a job where you have to produce widgets on an assembly line or something like how do you can you possibly get the same amount of work done in four shifts instead of five so let me play another clip here for you it's from the same caller ryan in vancouver i think does a good job of making this point then i'll get your thoughts have a listen if you deal in producing physical goods or you yeah. deliver a physical entity of some kind you you can't qualify because the last thing we need right now is to lower our output in the economy with less things by making people sleep in more Okay, and let me play another call here for you, Joe, before you respond to that one. So this is another caller on last week's show. This is Mark in Nanaimo. He works in the construction industry, making the same argument. Have a listen. They'll get your thoughts. This four-day work week won't work for companies like I'm in because we're in the construction business. To lose a day of work is a lot of productivity because you have to start putting down your, your project. Like when you slow it down, you lose productivity because you're not, you don't keep working. You're, you're working for that hour to happen. Yeah, what do you say to that argument? Like, if a guy's a guy's working on a construction site, and he's expected to get, you know, lay a certain number of bricks per day in a wall or something, how do you how can you possibly get the same amount of work done in fewer days? Your thoughts? So, so it is true to say that the four day week is not a one size fits all. So, in the same way that the five day nine to five is the most standard work arrangement across the economy today. Of course, it's not the only one. So nobody is arguing, including me, that every single job type, profession, industry should move to a four-day, nine-to-five kind of model. What we're saying is is that in the vast majority of cases, people currently working a standard five-day week could move to a four-day week, and it could become the new normal. And other versions and variations of work time reduction would need to be implemented 
to accommodate different types of work. We have seen manufacturing companies do this very successfully. Advanced RV, who make custom motorhomes in Ohio, have done this, reduced work time, found process efficiencies on the factory floor, and have managed to be able to maintain output. There's a 3D printing company in the UK. I could rattle off a whole host of other examples, but there's no industry where you could not point to a case study or a success story where they've been able to figure this out. I would say certainly number one, it can be it can require more innovation and can maybe require more rethinking than might be the case in knowledge work where this might be more straightforward. And sometimes it might require different variations. So for example, lots of manufacturing companies, they don't go to four days 32, they might go to four days 35 or four days 36 and they find that they're able to sustain productivity at that level. Okay, last question for you, Joe. If it's so good, you know, we've been talking about this on the show recently and it sounds it sounds great, but if it's so good, how come more employers haven't done it voluntarily? Because this is not a new idea, right? This idea has been kicked around literally for decades. I, I remember as, as a young newspaper reporter, and I'm talking decades ago, writing stories about a four-day work week that the local labor council at this little newspaper where I was working was advocating for. I mean, this is... This has been around a long time. If it's so great and it works so well, how come more employers just haven't done it voluntarily? Sometimes it takes a great disruptor to dislodge very deeply held societal and cultural norms. And the five-day week has been around a long time. You know, we've come through globalization, the advent of the internet, email, and yet we still have the same standard work week as we did a century ago. So much like remote working, I would argue before the pandemic, we had the capacity to work remotely. We had virtual communications, we had virtual meetings, asynchronous communications, but the reality is that it took the pandemic for people in business and society to to view the idea that you could be as productive at home as you could be in the office, you could run a global company from your kitchen table. It took the pandemic to change that mindset. And I think the same has happened with the four-day work week. I think as companies have moved to a much more output-based model of measurement, rather than measuring people based on who's the first person to to present at work in the morning and who's the last person to leave in the evening. I think that that's opened the door to consider something that maybe a few years ago might have seemed like a radical notion. I think it's clear from the research and the fact that this is now a growing trend with more and more companies adopting it, that the four-day week is something that lots of leaders are considering in 2023. Okay, lots of calls in four-day work week. Let's get a traffic update real quick from Jeff Jeffries at AM730. Jeff, is it getting better? Yeah, it's getting much better out there, Mike. We've got a couple of holdouts still, still lots of volume around the Lionsgate Bridge. They had just reopened that about half an hour ago to uh, all lanes of traffic once again after some earlier issues through the Stanley Park Causeway. That's been reopened, which is fantastic. We are still dealing with that house fire in the uh, southwest marine dry stretch just west of Dunbar. That's got traffic blocked off in both directions. And to make matters worse, there's still some sucked buses on Dunbar between 41st and southwest marine Drive blocking that off. So pretty heavy in that area as well. It is still snowing out there. The roads are still slushy out there, but there's not a lot of big delays anymore. So just keep adjusting your driving habits to those road conditions and being safe out there. Jeff, thanks for the update. No problem. I appreciate it. Jeff Jeffries, AM 730. Let's go to your calls. Rob in Vancouver. Hey, Rob, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Uh, When um, COVID first started, I was laid off. And then when I started looking for work, I pretty much had uh, the pick of whatever I wanted to do because I'm a tradesman. And uh, one job offered uh, four tens. Everybody gets Sunday off, and uh, I had Wednesday, Thursday off. So I never worked more than two days in a row. 
and I and I work uh, ten hours a day. My wife yeah. works nine nines, so every second Monday she gets off. And you know what? I would never go back. I was already working ten hours a day for five days a, a week. And you know, over a hundred years ago, everybody was working seven days a week. Yeah. So yeah. you know what they you know how they say more or sorry less is more. Rob, thank you for that. Well, I guess what you're describing there is a compressed work week, which I think a lot of people love. Whether you can work less and still get the same output, though, I think is the bigger debate going on right now. Scott in Surrey. Hi, Scott. What do you think? Hey, Mike. You know, the key is that it's not going to work for everybody. In in my business, yeah. you know, even six and seven days a week isn't enough sometimes. And the thing is, is that if I phone a supplier and they're not open on, on Monday to Friday... I'm just going to find another supplier and I'll never go back. I'll, I got to go to the guys that can get me my stuff that I need because that's, I, I deal with primary industry, food services and essential services. So I got to get stuff done. I, I don't have time to phone someplace and have them say, Oh no, we're not open today. Yeah. That's all I got, Mike. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Scott. I think it's a good point. It doesn't work for everybody. Matt in Surrey, Matt, you got 30 seconds here. Hey, yeah. I used to work, uh, for, Four days uh, in, uh, in the oil staff there, and you need to do your 10-hour shift, but it, it is better, in my opinion. I hated having to come back to five-day work weeks, but it, yeah. I, it's, like, we always met schedule. We've done multi-million dollar projects. We're, we're never behind, right? Thank but you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, if you can, you can swing it, if you can get a four-day work week through your employer, I mean, heck, a lot of people would, would love it. Whether this government is willing to give tax breaks or tax incentives to employers who try it, that's another story. Interesting issue, though, for sure, and we're going to continue to follow it for you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. 